Today on Podcast by the Bay, we speak with the candidate for the District 13 State Senate seat, Sally Lieber. A year after I left office, I happened to be meeting with some farm workers in Pescadero, and um, someone mentioned that I had authored the minimum wage increase, and seeing their reactions and how much it meant to them to get a $1.25 increase an hour uh, was really profound and made me really believe that a change is possible. All coming up on today's episode of Podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned. Podcast by the Bay is brought to you by Highway Soul Productions. Check us out at highwaysoul.com and in conjunction with Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs www.liberty-realtyinvestments.com And now, another podcast by the Bay. Okay, welcome to Podcast by the Bay. We thank you for being with us, and we thank you for downloading this episode and for spreading the word to all your friends about Podcast by the Bay. And so today, we're going to continue our candidate coverage for District 13 State Senate seat. And so today's candidate we're going to feature is Sally Lieber. And so Sally Lieber, you actually might remember Sally Lieber. She actually was a previous assembly member for District 22 up until 2008. And so we're going to get into this interview. And so once again, Podcast by the Bay does not endorse any candidate. We merely give our platform and speak with the candidate to hear their vision for all the listeners out there. And so if you have any questions, you have any feedback, please reach out to us at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at Podcast by the Bay as our handle or on Facebook, facebook.com slash podcast by the Bay. Remember, you can listen to any of our shows 24 hours a day, seven days a week, on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, any of the podcast sites, we are there. So once again, we're going to get to the interview with Sally Lieber. This is one of our candidate series for District 13 of California State Senate seat. Until next time, stay tuned. Welcome to Podcast by the Bay. We have the honor of interviewing Sally Lieber. Sally Lieber um, is from originally Ohio. Or is uh, Detroit, Michigan? Detroit, Detroit. Detroit Michigan. <laughs> she was born in the 60s, 1961, is that correct? Yep. Well, in 1961, John F. Kennedy was celebrating his first year in office, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So, uh, kind of a pivotal time. So, you grew up in Detroit? Yep. Okay. Grew up in Detroit, and uh, Motown music was really the soundtrack of my youth, as well as the Beatles. And I still have so much affection and respect for Detroit and everything that the city and the people there have survived. And I've now been in California longer than I was back home, and that's kind of a strange feeling. Well, it's a natural for you, it sounds like, with your background. I was also a little fascinated that I read a little clip about you that you were known in your youthful days to uh, kind of put your sunglasses in your hair to look like Gloria Steinem. <laughs> is, that, is that true, or is there a picture around of that? I think there's got to be a picture of uh, aviator glasses over my hair. 
And um, it's interesting. I've now met Gloria a number of times, and I'm still spellbound by her. <laughs> well, congratulations um, for taking the, the time to interview with us at Podcast by the Bay. Um, if I'm staying corrected, you, um, you, when did you come out to California? Uh, 1986. And, okay. Uh, I moved to San Francisco, and it was really a different city at that time than it is now. Um, it was, uh, the impact of the AIDS crisis was visually very uh, apparent, and it was a much smaller city than it is now in terms of the population. It really felt like a, a town rather than a big city. So things have changed in San Francisco. Now, uh, I think you, you graduated from Stanford in 1998. Mm -hmm. um, in 1998, if I recall, you, you ran for city council and you uh, did extremely well. If you could tell the listeners, what's the passion for public service? Um, obviously, you, you, you served three terms in the state assembly. Um, and I think you're one of the only candidates so far that I've interviewed that has actually served in the assembly. Um, mm -hmm. And I congratulate you on that. And I congratulate you on all your uh, um, progressive movements that you're, you're involved in. We're going to talk a little bit about those later. But what inspired you in, in 1998 to run for, run for public office? Well, I was one of those political kids growing up in the Watergate era and um, growing up in the era of civil rights and uh, Vietnam War protests. The politics were kind of all around us. And my parents really talked a lot about that. Um, my mother's family in particular was really um, impacted by their experiences during the Great Depression. And so I think kind of coming out of that confluence of, uh, of political ideas, I've always felt that politics has the power to really help and change people's lives for the better. And so that's what I've tried to do, whether it was in student government or city council as mayor, um, on a county commission where I worked on foster care and juvenile justice issues and dependency care, and then definitely in the state assembly. Now, were your mom and dad involved at all in civic uh, uh, politi politics at all, or is it just something that you are you the oldest or the youngest? I, I'm the baby, and I gotta say, babies really rock. <laughs> <laughs> But they were not, um, they were civically involved, but not in, in running for office. And so I started to work on campaigns when I was about 12 or 13. And it's just always been something that really made sense to me and that uh, I had uh, a real love for. Well, I congratulate you for serving three terms for the uh, 22nd Assembly District. Um, you were a speaker pro tem. And if I'm not mistaken, you were the third woman to hold a leadership position since 1849. So, who were the, um, do you know who the other two were? Or? Uh, the first one was uh, Sheila Kuehl. And, you know, she was uh, a child actor and um, uh, played Zelda on Dobie Gillis. And so there's always a, a box uh, behind the rostrum in the State Assembly that's called the Kuehl Stool. Um, because of her short stature. And she gave me the advice of when you're presiding over the assembly, have uh, a command position of your body 
and never let your head drop down bef- below the rostrum. <laughs> so. Wow, you, you, you know, those are words well said. And, and yeah. that, that's excellent. So that's, well, I think you filled a, a good position. I know that a lot of the um, people in the background were going to kind of give the listeners the area that the uh, 13th uh, uh, State Senate District covers is from San Francisco to Mountain View. Isn't that correct? Uh, South San Francisco through Sunnyvale. Uh, so it's basically all of the peninsula, and it's a beautiful district. It's kind of the everything bagel of districts because it has mountains, forests, uh, seashore, bayshore. It has really powerful institutions, uh, a lot of innovation in terms of business, and just a lot of great hometowns up and down the peninsula. Well, you, you're, you're an individual that I've done a little bit of research, and you don't give up. I know that you, <laughs> you, you um, ran back in 2012 for the same position that you're running now, and that was for Senator Hill's seat. And I admire that you did that. Jerry obviously has been there a long time, um, and, it's, and he's probably anxious to move on to a new, new position in his life, and he's dedicated himself. So what do you think that you could offer? Um, um, we're not asking you to fill Jerry's shoes because, you know, nobody can fill Jerry's shoes like just nobody can fill your shoes or your ideas. So mm-hmm. tell us where, where you want to go with the uh, 13th Senate District. Well, some of the things that I focused on in the State Assembly uh, were the environment, uh, trying to make life better for low-income uh, Californians and residents of the Bay Area, and uh, just... Uh, working on governance, trying to make the California government run better. So uh, I authored the legislation to create the San Francisco Bay Restoration Authority, and I've stayed very involved with that agency. We just gave out the first $500 million in grants to local governments to do restoration of Bay wetlands. And that's been something that's been very um, exciting to see develop. Uh, Another piece of legislation that I carried was the first state-level increase in the minimum wage, uh, $1.25 an hour. And it was uh, legislation that was signed by a Republican governor. It was a really, really important uh, increase in the minimum wage. I think about uh, a year after I left office, I happened to be meeting with some farm workers in Pescadero. And... um, Someone mentioned that I had authored the minimum wage increase and seeing their reactions and how much it meant to them to get a $1.25 increase an hour uh, was really profound and made me really believe that a change is possible. A while back, I interviewed uh, Kevin, uh, almost Kevin Mullins, Selman Mullins, and uh, the epidemic that's going across the country and it was also facing Sacramento with sexual harassment. Um, mm-hmm. I know that uh, about a year and a half ago, Kevin was going back to the state assembly. Are, do you think they're conquering that sexual harassment issue properly um, of, of the issues that are facing our legislators? We we all realize it's not just our politicians; it's our movie stars or, or sports figures and, and a lot of things. Is there anything that you think that could happen, especially when you become a public servant, you, you do represent the public and you want to see a better image. Anything that you could bring to mind and, um, if you were back there in the Senate uh, to be able to uh, move a little bit more forward in a more progressive way? 
Yeah, I I signed on to the letter urging uh, our legislators to make a change in that area, and I'm pleased by the progress, but there's so much more that needs to be done. When I was in the state assembly, there were just about 20% of the legislators were women, and now I think it's inched up to 25%. But having women in the process, in, in the building, um, doing work on behalf of the public really makes a difference. I think that that changes the atmosphere right there. And as much of a disadvantage as being a woman is in running for office, it's an advantage in being in office. Um, I think that I got more latitude to work on more topics um, because the men who were 80% felt like if they didn't respect the ideas that I was bringing forward, that they would be facing a feminist firestorm of some kind themselves. And so I think that we need more women in the process to, to work on those issues. Um, an issue that I did a lot of work on were, were the rights for women in prison. And there is a lot of uh, change that needs to happen to ensure that their rights uh, are respected um, and that uh, we have the right kind of protocols in place. Well, I'm glad you brought so that up. So it, it radiates yeah. out from the Capitol itself to policy. Absolutely. I think there's some current legislation that's being proposed. I think it's in the, uh, the Assembly, or if it might not be in the Senate, to, to uh, not have any... Uh, convicted felons to be able to, if they've done their time, to come back to the process of being able to vote. Uh, yeah. You know, because there's been so many felons that have done their time, and some of them were not real heinous crimes, uh, but they're back in the system, and so it, 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 I think it's going to be powerful if we can get those people back in the process of contributing to to the country that they live in, the community. What, what's your thoughts on that? Too? Well, I definitely support that, and, um, you know, Sometimes people are talking about funding for education. Well, our overspending on criminal justice, often on ineffective ways of dealing with things, has an impact on the amount of money that's available for education. And California is subject to a number of uh, court decisions that the, um, the federal government has the opportunity to mandate what kind of services and to just... Uh, our pocketbook is open as a state because we've lost all these cases and, and the federal government has taken control. Um, so I think that we need a lot of change in terms of criminal justice in, in our state. And I haven't seen uh, enough progress over the past few years. Uh, one thing that is true about being in office is that every position in the state legislature it comes with the responsibility to fundraise. And many of the issues that are not good fundraising issues, like working on criminal justice issues, like working on behalf of people with developmental disabilities, um, just become orphaned issues by virtue of the fact that you can't fundraise off of them. And legislation gets driven towards little fixes for big corporations. So when I was in the State Assembly, I went through the difficult process of doing the work that I felt was most impactful, um, including reforms of our prison system, and uh, just 
took the fallout from that. Well, I'm excited that you're doing that. My, my background, I'm a real estate broker by trade, but I went back on my master's in teaching in business, and my master's thesis was mainstreaming autistic kids in San Mateo and Santa Clara County. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that there is a, a lack of transparency on how the money is actually spent. Um, so I, I would look for you to push as much legislation as you can. I've looked in your background. You, you are a very good advocate of early childhood learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and we found out that the children that go to school before kindergarten, uh, early learning, have a much better chance of, of adapting in the school system. We're lucky out here in San Mateo and Santa Clara County to, um, to have the teachers we have. Now, this dovetails into uh, another problem that we have on the peninsula, and that's housing. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your ideas on housing, um, and how can, how can we improve it? Um, we have podcasts by the Bay had encouraged most of the elected officials and, and the governor, in fact, to look into the surplus land that we have um, and see if we can build some affordable housing. So what, what, what's your take on affordable housing? How do you think we should approach it? Because um, the cost of housing on the peninsula is 50 to 60% of it is the cost of the land. Right, absolutely. And um, I'm very heartened to see that there are proposals moving forward to look at the land that has been used for the Cow Palace. I think that that could be much better used for the community in terms of affordable housing and uh, the kind of family housing that we need to still have a middle class in the Bay Area. Um, I'm very interested in making it easier for local governments, for transit agencies to use the surplus land that they have, possibly through a land bank, uh, to be able to work with the nonprofit housing providers. And I think that we need to look at compact housing. It used to be the case that any city of a reasonable size had a YW and a YMCA that had clean, quiet, small rooms for single people that were just five by seven, a safe place to be with a lock on the door. And um, now we've kind of gotten away from that. And we did a, a studio efficiency project when I was on city council. And for the single worker, um, the only thing that we could get it to an agreement on was about 300 square feet per person. Well, that's a lot of space, and I think we could do a much better job of having compact, transit-oriented, close-to-small-business housing. I'd also really like to see us change the minimum dwelling size so that we could look at the remnant parcels that are everywhere on the peninsula and really um, look at what we can do to encourage uh, the uh, accessory dwelling units, the ADUs, um, where they're appropriate and where there's space to have them. Well, I think the state has taken a pretty good stance on that in, in telling the cities that they have to comply with the secondary unit, which I think is encouraging. We're all using it $3.5 million, $3.5 million units that are needed in the state of California. And I try to wrap my arms around that for a moment. And I, what I really want to understand is, and I don't think we have the answer, but maybe you do, is that first-time buyers? Is that affordable housing? Is that subsidized housing? Is that senior housing? Because I think the dilemma that we have on the peninsula is not that we just need to continue to build units. 
Right. Um, and before right. we address that, a really interesting thing, 50 to 60% of the people that live in San Mateo and Santa Clara County own their own homes, and they're senior citizens. And most of them, so the question I pose is, do we really have a shortage of housing? Or do we really have a lack of a certain type of housing? And do we have, how can we encourage the senior citizens, and I know quite a few of them that said, you know, I don't want to move. I don't want to pay that tax on that million, yeah. two million or three million dollar home. So how do we approach that a little bit better? Because we're losing our school teachers, uh, we're losing our workforce, um, and we have, is there is is there a way that we can handle that better? Well, I think the the community wide conversation that needs to come up is just starting to come up uh, through the MTC and and. Uh, through some of the collaborative organizations that we have to look at all the different sectors. So uh, entry-level uh, housing that's affordable for individuals and for families, uh, the first-time home buyer kinds of things. Um, and then um, my passion is around extremely low-income housing and supportive housing for people with disabilities. And that's just uh, uh, incredibly needed in the Bay Area. We don't have nearly enough. Um, so I think we need to look at each of those sectors and see where they can be accommodated in the community. Uh, there was a lot of discussion of Senator Weiner's bill last year. Um, I feel like the local governments do know the best about what will work in their own community. Um, but we have to have a wider conversation about how are we going to house the workforce, whether it's teachers, um, caregivers, uh, all the people that are essential for the community to to operate. And um, so it's it's not really a black and white, and I definitely would not support anything that said, well, we need to just get older people to get out of their houses and loosen those up for young families. Um, I think I'm getting into that category myself where um, I, I don't want to give up on my house. Um, but really looking at where would we have the opportunity to do this. A big lost opportunity to my mind was uh, at Moffett Field. And uh, that was 2,000 acres in the heart of Silicon Valley. Um, that should have been a wider community conversation, but now Google has a 60-year lease on nearly all of the land. And um, so the Cow Palace is an opportunity to do that, but so are all of the um, surface parking lots and other facilities that are owned by the, tra the transit agencies. Well, I might propose another one. I don't know if you, you've even, even considered that. And that's Seton Hospital. The county of San Mateo, as you know, put a parcel thing through for $11 million to retrofit that hospital. And as you know, that hospital's in bankruptcy. And I know our, our uh, state attorney general tried to put a pretty tough thing together because that, that facility takes care of a lot of the engine or the people that are can't afford the health care in the San Mateo County. So maybe something with uh, Seton Hospital, maybe David Canop is out there listening because I <laughs> told him, Supervisor Canop, that we need to look at those things because you take, a, I, I greatly appreciate your, your thoughtful uh, uh, take on the, uh, the Moffitt Field and, and, and the stuff because it's real important that we look at the land that we have and use it to its best, best use. 
Yeah, and, and I think we also have to look at the reality of the RV dwelling families and see to it that there is a safe place for them to be. Uh, many of these families have small children and uh, we need to figure out how to um, work with the local communities to make sure that there's a, a safe situation um, for them where they can access school and, and work and transit and all those things. But we're not nearly there as, as a region. And um, so we have to really work on it continuously to get to that point. When I interviewed uh, last year the 16 mayors in, in, in San Mateo County, um, most all of the cities, uh, for except Foster City, which I happen to live in, and it has requirements. Foster City has a 20% requirement for affordable housing uh, to be built into the system. Um, but what I'm noticing on the peninsula uh, is each individual city is doing a little bit differently. <laughs> some would be based on if the city owns the property, um, some would be based on project by project. Uh, currently, the governor um, is is trying to do an old-fashioned carrot of the stick uh, with with doing with this, the gas sales tax. Uh, I was wondering what your opinion is on that. He basically is saying that we would hold back uh, the gas tax to fix the infrastructure, the roads from the cities that would not comply with building more housing. Yeah, well, so far what I've been hearing from folks who are reacting to that is that it's not landing particularly well. <laughs> and uh, so that message might need to be fine-tuned a little bit. And I think the, the collaborative conversation within the Bay Area is going to be different than individual cities in, in Southern California. Um, and I, I think that... You know, as an example, right now, uh, BART had the legislation to allow them to do housing uh, on their sites in their surface parking lots. I think we need to give other agencies that same kind of permission to look at that. And um, it's, it's not going to be easy because um, people think back to the way that things used to be. I grew up on a street that was very mixed economically. Um, our, our next door neighbor, the father was a truck driver, two doors down, the fellow who worked at the filling station, and we also had doctors and attorneys living on our street. And it's just not that way anymore. Things have gotten very stratified. And um, so I think we need to approach it from the perspective of everybody wants to do the right thing and how can we, how can we make it happen. How could we be able to do a land bank um, or a collaborative approach between cities uh, to do more? Well, you know, you bring up a real good point, um, Sally. And one of the things we talked about, and I know we both agree on it, is, is to build uh, towards a transportation corridor areas. The only unfortunate thing from what I understand, there's no, there's no study showing that building near the corridor transportation, the people actually take public transportation. That's number one. Um, number two is, is that I think we're, we're the biggest problem that we're facing besides the housing is transportation. Um, I've been adamant on the people that I've interviewed. We, we don't have a transit district. We don't have a transportation district where everything flows. The only thing we brag on the peninsula is what we call the Clifford card. Um, mm -hmm. I think the Clifford card is exciting, 
But if we take a look at the narrative of the people that are coming into the Bay Area uh, from as early as 4.30 in the morning to leaving as 7.30 or 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock at night are single drivers. So mm-hmm. what would your suggested proposal, um, if you were on the, on the Senate, how would you change the narrative? Because we don't seem to... Bart's fighting for the same federal and state tax dollars. Sam Tram is fighting for it. Um, I'm excited about Regional Measure 9. Uh, mm-hmm. We in- interviewed the stakeholders on that. The electrification of Caltrans is very exciting. Mm-hmm. But still, we don't have an intertwine of our transit district. What can we do? Yeah, well, I, I guess it's still the case that there are 29 different transit agencies in the Bay Area. I, I think that some consolidation needs to happen. Um, we need to take into account the the span of control of governance uh, if if anything was looked at uh, in those terms and I totally agree that it does not work to put market rate housing um, of well-paid tech workers next to the mass transit because by and large those workers have a car they have a Tesla that they love to drive and so it just adds to the congestion and it doesn't make sense. Um, I am very sympathetic with the cities that are saying we need to put a cap on office development until we get a a handle on the housing to go with it because it's like a balloon that you squeeze and it bulges in a different spot and this is just our reality in the Bay Area. We're very fortunate to have that economic Uh, activity going on, but we have to deal with the outcomes of it. I think that near transit, we have to focus on affordable housing, the people that are already taking transit. And I would love to see a more regional approach here uh, to the, the most heavily used lines to make sure that you could go from downtown San Jose up to the city on El Camino on one bus and not have to switch from one system to the other. And the Clipper card is a great advantage, but it took about 15 years to achieve that. And um, sometimes when we're looking at the contracting that we're, we're doing um, through government, I think rather than always creating a new solution, we have to look at what already exists and what's already working Uh, for other agencies, and can we piggyback on what they're doing? Um, Because just the the churn and um, uh, all the different facets of trying to get one solid clipper card uh, were really uh, frustrating over a period of 15 years. Let's go back to the quarter transportation uh, areas here that, you know, I think we could build more housing if we had less garages. So if instead of building a two-car garage there, you built a one-car garage. Now, the Bay Meadows project, not the whole project, had a portion that if you, if you moved in, you had to do a ride share. So if we can dovetail that into a first-time home buyer's CC&Rs, that you, you could, you, we wouldn't build as much parking. And if we eliminated uh, a two-car garage and had a one-car garage, I would think we could build more units. Um, and if we build more units, maybe we can build those units for the workforce that live in the area. Um, it yeah. seems that we're building rental units. We're not building units for, for people to purchase. Uh, right. Do you think we're, we're going down the wrong direction in that area? 
Well, I, I think that that goes to the cost of land being a part of it, and those uh, even small units for purchase being completely out of reach of the people that would be interested in them, the younger families. And, and part of it speaks to uh, the need for Prop 13 reform. Um, things have gotten really so out of balance over time that the young families that are trying to look at coming into the the into home ownership in the communities where they live in rental housing uh, look at the tax bill and and the the ownership housing is now subsidizing the burden that used to be carried more equitably between corporations and homeowners and they really can't afford it um, so uh, I, I think we just need to look realistically at the needs and and you mentioned before the people that live in um, their own home and are maybe living alone as a senior now there are a lot of them who would like to go to um, housing where they would be in contact with other people and have a social life but still stay in the community and there aren't enough opportunities for them to do that either. Um, so I, I think that the conversation that's developing needs to be a real roundup of all of those needs and looking at well how could we do this in a really cohesive way with um, the design being very important to um, the housing fitting into the community. Obviously, it doesn't work if you plop down something that just is is so bulky and doesn't fit with the hometown feel. Um, but I think that there are other ways of doing it. What do you think currently um, some of the city, San Bruno, um, and Daly City are all thinking about campus housing. I know in uh, there's a couple of schools that closed in San Bruno that the school district is thinking about building uh, um, affordable housing on there for teachers. Do you think that's a, a good direction to go? Yeah, I think it's it's much needed, and we also need to be paying teachers more than forty thousand a year. <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, to to have a, a a family with one child. Um, and be able to be free of needing supports and social services, it's right around 90000 a year in the Bay Area. Um, new teachers are, are making right around forty, And that doesn't pencil out for them being able to be here longer term. Um, it also really results in the teacher's um, having to work other jobs, not being able to be um, the sponsor for an on-campus club or do any extras or, or be able to be present in the community the way that they would like to. So I think the housing on campus is a great idea. Some of our districts do have surplus properties. Um, and we also need to have, I think, housing set-asides uh, within the affordable housing that the cities do for teachers, for healthcare workers, uh, for caregivers in the community. 
and um, really bake that into the affordable housing. One of the new methods, when we had the last recession in 2008, uh, one of the things that the state of California did was grab a hold of the redevelopment money. So most of the cities don't have that redevelopment money, um, but also with all due respect to the state and with due respect to the cities, they didn't use that money as much as they should have used it for affordable housing. Um, what's your take? Should we bring, should the redevelopment money go back to the cities and, um, and would you want to have a stipulation that they really do need to use it for affordable housing? Yeah, redevelopment was really varied across the state. Um, some agencies had enormous amounts of money that they were not using and um, others had money that they were using towards a great purpose of providing affordable housing for the people who needed it in their communities. Um, so I think it's something that really merits another look at it now that we have uh, a surplus. And um, really looking at what are all the tools that are out there for us to use. You know, another part of that is when the state went into um, the largest budget shortfall in, in American history, $29.5 billion, we were heavily, heavily dependent on personal income taxes, as we still are. We're still at risk in terms of that. Um, that speaks to the need for reform of Prop 13. Uh, well, I'm excited that well. you're bringing up the Prop 13, and, and it's my analysis under the 13, and obviously I remember when my parents were very much in support of it because it meant that their property taxes weren't going to go up. The negotiation on the Prop 13 really, basically, the commercial real estate basically fit right into Prop 13. And as a result, we've lost trillions of dollars of property tax dollars because the commercial's in there. So I don't know, is that something that you think we can separate the two, the residential and the commercial? The, the, the idea with Prop 13 um, was to allocate so much of the property taxes for the city and the county. And as you realize over the progression, we ended up having a period of time where cities had collectively had to create legislation to get the money that they were entitled to under 13. So how can we, how can we make that better? I'm starting to make yeah. that a complex uh, problem there, but I think we need to address that too. Well, I think that uh, it's not a given that, that reform of Prop 13 would pass if it's on the ballot. There have to be protections for homeowners in it. That, that has to be ironclad. Um, but I think it's something that should go on the ballot. And it's a conversation that should keep coming up um, because we don't have the funding that we need for our schools. And as, as I'm out on the campaign trail, a lot of people ask me, what would you do for education? And we've had a lot of great reforms and a lot of um, changes and, and efforts to make things more accountable, but we really need more money. So whether it's through Prop 13 or a wealth tax on the highest income earners, the, the billionaires in California, uh, we just need to do more to step up to this, uh, this challenge. And, um, you know, I, I think that uh, paying teachers more and and professionalizing what it is that they do is is critically needed. Um, but we can't keep going the way that we have. And 
being dependent on personal income taxes still leaves us with the problem that we had with the downturn before. Well, I, I've got a two-part question here. Um, I, I think that the, what we have, I know the governor has a suggested idea of a tax on tax dividend back to the consumers, you know, because of the Google and Facebook and all the different technology companies that are using our personal information and profiting from it. What, what's your position on that? Do you think that's a, a good idea? Yeah, I, I think that um, to the extent that we're adding value to the products of, of the high-tech um, companies, we need to, uh, to look at that for sure. I really appreciate the approach of keeping a rainy day fund. Um, that wasn't something that was done before we had the huge budget crash. And when we had the huge budget crash around 2001, 2002, 2003, it was extraordinarily painful uh, to cut services that we knew were needed, uh, to literally cut adult diapers for people with disabilities and, and seniors, uh, to cut everything to the bone. And if we don't want to go through that again, we've got to keep a, a really healthy reserve. And um, there's always going to be a lot of you know, legitimate claims of we should do this or we should do that. Um, but until we address the, the potential volatility in the money that we have available to us, we've got to be really careful. You know, one of the other issues that you're passionate, and I'm very passionate about it, and I worked on it probably, oh, maybe 20 years ago um, in, in San Francisco with Danny Glover, and that's homelessness. Um, I'm a native San Franciscan, and I've taken public transportation twice to interview uh, Senator Weiner and Assemblyman Chu, uh, and it's, it, it's, it's a sad thing uh, to uh, go into San Francisco and see so much of the homelessness. But before I just dovetail on the homelessness, we have homelessness also in San Mateo County and in Santa Clara County. Uh, the county's approach, um, to my knowledge, uh, was to do a volunteer survey of needs of the homeless. Um, I think there's a bigger problem than just the word homelessness, um, and that has to do with mental health. Um, yeah, absolutely. So what can we do, um, and I know um, our governor probably will be trying to tackle the homeless in the state, um, mm -hmm. How can we tackle it on the peninsula? Um, well, a couple things occur to me. Um, one is when you say a person who's homeless, I think we all have an image in our mind of what that looks like. Um, here on the peninsula, there can be people that we don't even recognize as being homeless. Uh, they're living in their car, they're couch surfing, they're getting by. Um, they are going to work every day, they're working multiple jobs, but they still can't afford the high, high, high cost of rent. And um, But the individuals who really have multiple uh, issues going on, I think we need to, to do more to work on. You know, every day in each one of our cities, we have the police or the fire department going out to assess and often take a person to the county hospital um, who are really the frequent flyers. Um, they need inebriate housing, which Gavin Newsom championed in San Francisco, where people who are, are just going to be alcoholics have a safe place to be indoors 
and and not have to be in crisis on the street. Um, we need those safe injection sites. And I really support London Breed's call for changes to conservatorship laws. Um, because there are people on our streets who, if they could be brought out of their issues for a few minutes and see what their life is like, they would be horrified. And I've met and talked with the people who are part of uh, the mentally ill community who feel like it's a human rights issue that they are entitled to be the way that they are and to have a mental illness. And um, I think I, I, I have heard their, their comments and taken them to heart, but I just really believe that there are too many people on the streets who are not cared for in the way that they need to be. And they are at the intersection of developmental disabilities, substance abuse, self-medicating. Um, they are criminalized and they are filling up our prison system right now. And prison is not uh, a substitute for a mental health system. That's the way that it's used in California. And, um, you know, a lot of people don't realize that our prisons in California are like a big hotel where 90% of the rooms change over every night and 10% of the rooms are occupied by people who will be there forever. <laughs> so um, we're using prison and jail as, as a mental health facility. We need to look at specialized housing, supportive housing, plus conservatorship. And my heart breaks for the families who have a family member who's homeless on the street and they live in fear every single day of what's happening to their mother, their daughter, their son, their father um, out on the streets. And they really uh, don't have the tools that they need to try to help their family member. Um, so I think we need to look at that in a very serious way. Well, you know, it's surprising in the peninsula that, you know, uh, without talking um, politics, so to speak, is, is that we, we incarcerate quite a few people in this progressive San Mateo and Santa Clara County with long sentences. Um, and uh, you, some, a lot of the people, not all of them, are people of color. So they're, they're serving long sentences. So it, it appears that we, we, we've made an extreme failure on rehabilitation. So uh, besides the mental illness, which I really strongly feel that you're absolutely right on target, how can we approach the rehabilitation much better if it, if it costs an average of maybe fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year to keep somebody in a state uh, state prison or a county jail? Um, it seems like a dead end street. Uh, the probation department is 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 doing their part. The bail bondsman is doing their part. Um, everybody seems to be part of the system. So how can we how can we break away from that? Um, and, and and I know. In the, in the presidential election that's coming up, um, uh, one of our candidates and president was went the direction of giving longer sentences for drug users, and, and that we, we found out that that was not the answer. So how can we, we got to, it sounds like we've got to reform the uh, sentencing um, and, and, and do something with rehabilitation. Well, a few different things. Um, we absolutely need to reform probation and parole and look at a system of stepped-down aftercare. Um, most of the people moving through the, the prison system in the county jails 
have some kind of um, mental deficiency, if not uh, fetal alcohol syndrome. There are certain physical markers of fetal alcohol syndrome. And when you go into the prisons in California, you see the people with those markers. And you talk to the wardens who say 75% of the people here are seriously mentally ill. And um, so we need to do a, a better job of looking at what happens when someone comes out of prison. When a woman leaves prison and um, she comes out with a bus ticket and, and a paper suit of clothes and $75 in gate money, there are men who are waiting at those bus stations to take advantage of them and to bring them back into offending and to use them in crimes, to get them to be the person who holds the gun in a holdup so that he doesn't get the charges and she does. And we call that doing life on the installment plan. Um, I think that we also need to look at the county jails. You know, under some of the, the changes, AB 109, people who normally would have been in the uh, state prisons are now in county jails. And the county jails were never constructed for people to be there for four or five years. And the board that oversees what's going on in 58 county jails is completely um, uh, full of sheriff's department representatives and people who have a certain perspective on crime. We need to get mental health experts. We need to get academics. We need to get people from the nonprofit world onto that board. And I've said that I'll carry legislation to diversify that board and make sure that we have multiple perspectives on there. Um, but we really need to grapple with this issue of who is, who is doing life on the installment plan and continuing to go back and what charges are they in prison for. Um, we have a compassionate release program for elderly, incapacitated, blind, uh, unable to walk, people with Alzheimer's and, and terminal diseases that are within six months of death. We, that program is barely used, and we get no reimbursement from the federal government for running nursing, nursing homes of elderly, incapacitated inmates who may have done one serious crime in the 1950s and are still our responsibility. And we need to take that really hard look at, at who we're holding on to and say, hey, we're going to reserve prison for people who are a danger to society, not for a guy who uh, was involved in a bad motorcycle accident in 1966. Well, why don't we grab a hold of something and, and, and let's go back to the fundamental. We, we're not teaching mental health in our schools. So we, we, um, I think that especially in today's day and era, I would think there's a lot of different stresses on the last three generations, a little bit different than the ones that we grew up with. So how can we incorporate mental health? Uh, mental health, obviously, and the buzzwords that when we went to school, you wouldn't have had that. Uh, you, mm -hmm. you, you, you talk to a nurse or you talk to a school psychologist. But it seems like right now, they, they, and as teaching in the Sequoia School District, you have rotating nurses, rotating psychologists. How can we um, get mental health as a course back into, into our elementary and our schools? Um, obviously with the day of the social, social media and the bullying and all that type of stuff, 
there's a lot of stresses on all types of children of all different cultures and all different backgrounds. Yeah, I think that we need to, to reinstitute that. And um, in my day, it was called human relations in school, and you had to look at um, the impact of bullying and how to help people that were in crisis. It's not enough for us to just look at the police so much later in the process and say, well, let's rely on giving them crisis intervention training, as important as it is. It needs to start from a much younger age, and we have to also be teaching those those health classes that are important to physical health too because we have kids who are getting diabetes and other diseases that um, are coming in at a much younger age than than ever before um, and that goes to the funding that's available for schools i think another thing that's part of what should be taught in schools are civics and understanding information and, and critical thinking skills about information and media that is so important to our democracy going forward. Okay, on behalf of Podcast by the Bay, I want to give you some closing remarks. <laughs> Tell us why that the voters should vote for Sally. Why is Sally Lieber <laughs> the, the best candidate for the District 13 Senate? Yeah, I, I have a lot of experience and I, I have really proven myself through my legislation that I have courage, that I'm not cowed by the big money interests, and I can take action very effectively on behalf of our communities. But the thing that's most important to me as I'm campaigning is really deep listening. I feel so privileged when um, people tell me their stories and I think that people are willing to share more confidential, heartbreaking information with a woman candidate, an office holder than a man. That's the, the advantage that women have in the process. And I'm just really looking forward in this campaign to being present in every hometown and being able to hear people's stories. I really treasure that when they share that with me. Well, on behalf of Podcast by the Bay, I want to thank you for the opportunity and wish you a lot of luck running for the Senate seat. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Podcast by the Bay. Podcast by the Bay is brought to you by Highway Soul Productions. Check us out at HighwaySoul.com and in conjunction with Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs. www.Liberty-RealtyInvestments.com Remember to subscribe and download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact Podcast by the Bay by their email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. All material is property and copyrighted by Podcast by the Bay, but does not necessarily reflect the views of Podcast by the Bay. For sponsorship opportunities, please contact us by email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. Stay tuned.